2 Corinthians 7. So we've been plugging through this section. Paul's really kind of finishing a whole section that he began in chapter 2 talking about ministry. And he was speaking directly to the Corinthians at the end of 6 there, saying that his heart and his affections were open to them, but they were still cold toward him. And he began to bring up the reason I believe he felt that way, it was because they were unequally yoked together with unbelievers. And they were connected to the world in ways that believers shouldn't be. So he exhorts them not to do that. And then we finished up in 7 verse 1, where he says, Therefore, having these promises, those are the promises that he had just mentioned at the end of 6, the promises of God dwelling among us, walking among us, God being our God, us being his people, God as our father, us as his sons and daughters. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. So knowing that this is what we are in Christ and that we don't have these types of connections to the world, we have been called out of those things and been given a new nature, a new purpose, a new life, a new heart. We've been given the promises that God will be our God and that we'll be his sons and daughters, which, again, can seem not that powerful sometimes right now. But when you've been standing in heaven for a million years in eternity and you realize that God is your God, and you get to be his son or daughter, it's going to seem real powerful. Uh, right now in the world, because of you know, our insensitivity on some levels and on other levels, because the world's so in our face, we can easily forget these things. But Paul is exhorting them, look, this is what God has given us. So our response should be, to cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit. Filthiness speaks of any action that defiles. Anything that would defile both flesh and spirit, body and what's inside the body, however you want to work that out. The idea is, I think we often think of filthiness of the flesh, sins that you can actually see on the outside that our body is related to, addiction, sex, those types of things. But there's also things that relate to filthiness of the spirit. Now, they go together. Jesus said, it's because our hearts are wicked. And out of our hearts proceed evil thoughts and murders and adulteries and thefts. So our inward nature is corrupt. And then, therefore, that also affects our body. And since we're all sinners, our bodies do different sinful things. So your sinful nature expression could be one thing. Some people it relates to their gender or their sexuality a little bit more. Other people it relates to being violent. And others it relates to less, we'll say, active bodily sins, but more you just got a bad attitude. <laughs> You're prideful or covetous or greedy. I think these things illustrated uh, can be found in the parable of the prodigal son where we know and we think often of the prodigal son, we see his sins of action, sins of the flesh, sins of the body, where he goes out and wastes his living on basically partying. But then we have the elder son when he comes home who has sins of attitude. His, his, 
His heart is the problem. Sins of the spirit that we find there. And it's easy to, you know, look at somebody who's maybe an alcoholic and say, you got a problem. But, you know, the, the dad who rages in the home or the mother whose tongue is a whip for 20 years also has a problem. And those sins don't fit into the promises that God has given us or the image that he's making us into or the family that he's developing. So what he says is any filthiness, anything that defiles the flesh or the spirit, there's symptoms of inner impurity. And we should cleanse ourselves of those things. We should perfect holiness in the fear of God. Perfecting has the idea of maturing, bringing to completion holiness in the fear of God. Holiness is being set apart. God is the only one who's perfectly holy, three times holy. But you and I are supposed to reflect the holiness that's in the Lord, that nature of being set apart. We have the promise of God's help in these things. Again, Paul can command this because he knows all the other things God has promised and because he assumes that you have a new spirit. You're a new creation, that God is already doing this work in you if you're a believer. And we need to recognize it and submit ourselves to that. Sometimes, you know, there's lies in our culture that God essentially won't do this work in people. That if you're a believer and you struggle with something, you're just going to have to essentially give into it. And there's plenty of types of Christianity out there that will essentially uh, just make any social, culturally acceptable form of sin something God's not actually trying to change in us. But in all of us, he's trying to perfect holiness as his sons and daughters in the fear of God. And we should never despair of the sanctification that he wants to work in our lives. It should be a joy that he doesn't give up working on us. Nor should we believe, which is also, I think, sometimes out there, the devil wants to lie that a cleansed life must be a bland life. It is boring. There's no excitement there. You're going to end up living a life full of regrets if you're a person who just obeys God. You know, Daniel, Joseph, those guys, their lives were boring. Jesus, obviously. No sin. He, he didn't really. You know, there's part of us that you kind of want to have both worlds and sin for a while and then become somebody who's righteous. No. Proverbs 23, 17 says, don't let your heart envy sinners, but be zealous for the fear of the Lord all the day. There's always a lie out there that somehow the sin is more exciting. Fiction. You know, you watch a movie, the sinful things are the exciting things. The sex, the violence, all those things, the war, those things sell. But if you, nobody wants to watch a movie of a happy family that loves each other going out to get ice cream. Right? That's the life you want to live. But it's not what you want to entertain yourself with. It doesn't seem that exciting. Now, of course, it's a lie on the other side, because that's where the hurt and the regret and all those things are. And any of us in the places where we've been sinners, we can attest and witness to that. I, yes. 
I would warn everybody not to do that thing. It would be better had I not sinned. So where God is working on us, where he's perfecting holiness, we should allow him to do it. Notice he says, in the fear of God. This is how God gets us there. In his presence, living in the fear of God, as if God is near us, continuing with him, like the disciples did. That's how they became holy. They just kept walking with Jesus. And as they walked with Jesus, two things happened. They saw how they weren't like Jesus, and then he helped them become like him. And the longer they walked with him, the more that kept happening. So no matter where you are in your walk with Jesus Christ, you know what's going to happen. You're going to realize there's filthiness in my flesh and in my spirit. And he's going to begin to deal with those things. And you could tap out and say, well, I'm going to go fellowship with the world where they're not going to care about those things. Or you could keep walking with him and he'll conform you into his image and likeness. And he does that by calling us to be with him. Do I order and organize my life in his presence? My marriage, my friendships, my career, the way I spend my money, how I spend my leisure time. Is God present in those decisions or do we just assume he is? Paul knows that the Corinthians, if they hadn't been caught up in the worldly evil they had been, there wouldn't be relational distance between God or with him personally. And he's encouraging them to step out of it, not just because he wants to give a hard call, but because he knows God is what's best for people. And these are things that separate them from God and his presence. Cleanse yourself. So, therefore, this is what you do. You have these promises, beloved. Cleanse yourself. Any filthiness of the flesh or the spirit. Perfect holiness in the fear of God. Let him do that work. Now, he's going to continue to plead with them. Verse 2. He picks back up the discussion that he started in chapter 6, verses 11 through 13, where he was saying, open your hearts to us. We've opened our hearts to you. He says, open your hearts to us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have cheated no one. I do not say this to condemn, for I have said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. Great is my boldness of speech toward you. Great is my boasting on your behalf. I am filled with comfort. I am exceedingly joyful in all our tribulation. Paul wants to impress upon them his motive. He doesn't have any ulterior motive. His motive for them is love. Again, listen. He's saying, open your hearts to us. We didn't, we didn't wrong you. We didn't cheat you. You could tell we weren't there just to get something from you, Paul didn't show up places to get something from them. He came to give. You could tell ministries that are out to get something from you, and you could tell ministries that are out to give. And Paul was not going to show up in a city to get something from them. He showed up to give. He wanted to see them grow in Christ. So he says, look, we haven't corrupted anyone. We haven't cheated anyone. We haven't wronged anybody. You guys know that. He had no intention, not only that, to condemn them. Notice he says, I didn't say that to condemn you. I don't want you to feel bad. That's not why I'm saying this to you. He 
He's saying, we, in our hearts, said we wanted to live and die together with you. My whole goal here is to walk with you till God takes us home and to enjoy life when we have it. Paul says, That's, I'm, I'm not saying this to condemn you. I want you to know what our motives were. I didn't have some ulterior motive. There wasn't something going on in the background. We can get sometimes very conspiratorial of people, wondering what they're thinking or what they really want. Paul said, I didn't, I didn't have anything else. I just, we loved you guys. And this, this wasn't to condemn. I, my whole goal is to live and die with you. So great is my boldness of speech toward you. Great is my boasting on your behalf. He's, he's saying, I believe the best of you. I'm filled with comfort. I'm exceedingly joyful in all our tribulations. He's blessed because he knows their response he's going to talk about here in a little bit was very positive. And he wants them to know, I'm not stressed about this. He's rejoicing in his relationship with them, although he knows their love might be slow to respond. And I think Paul basically understands when, when you're the one who's corrected somebody, particularly when you're somebody who's, for them, a spiritual father figure, the person who led them to the Lord, it's, it is a common thing for that person to have a harder time coming back uh, to that correction. You wish it wasn't that way, but sometimes the more you love somebody, the more difficult it is to hear the truth from them. And I think it was difficult for the Corinthians to hear these things from Paul, although they needed to. But every parent in some regard and friend, pastor, or minister knows the experience of loving somebody enough to say the truth because you know it's what's best for them. And wishing that you could have that person close, but that person being distant because of that. And Paul here, I think, is just trying to express, look, I, I have no ulterior motive. I am not here to condemn you. I want to see God's work and what's best in your life. I love you. We're rejoicing. And he wants these people close. He's not satisfied that there might be something weird or a distance there. And he wants his heart to be expressed for them to understand that. Now, as he moves on, he's going to continue what he began to talk about in chapter 2, verse 12. If you go to 2, 12, and then you come back here in 7, 5, this goes right together, where he says, For indeed, when we came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were trouble on every side. Outside were conflicts, inside were fears. Nevertheless, God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the consolation with which he was comforted in you. When he told us of your earnest desire, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. So all the way back in chapter two, in the beginning of the book, he had begun to address this issue because he told them at the end of first Corinthians, I'm going to show up there first. Then I'm going to go to these other areas. And he didn't do that. He didn't know what was happening there when he sent that letter. He gave them a little bit more time to digest it. And he came, he was coming back to them later. So he hadn't heard anything. He was waiting in this area of Macedonia. He wanted to hear from Titus. And apparently, again, some people 
in the church were saying, oh, look, Paul doesn't follow through on his word. You can't trust what he says. So he's addressing kind of this issue again. So he says, look, when we were in Macedonia, he said, we had no rest. We were troubled on every side. He was confessing. I had problems. Paul says, outside were conflicts, inside were fears. Maybe you feel like this. I think it's important here, the Apostle Paul talk like this, right? Everything wasn't going rosy or smooth. We had all these battles on the outside, and inside he had fears. He had fears for this church. I don't think it was just him, per se, uh, but he had fears for their response, and he didn't know how they took that first letter. And he even wrote in chapter 2, verse 9 here, I was testing your obedience. Essentially, if they would have blown off 1 Corinthians and said, we're going to do church however we want to do church, they wouldn't have been a true God-honoring church anymore. And Paul is concerned that this church, what's going to happen here with them? Because he loves them and he cares about them and wants to see them walk in the truth and honor God. And He had fears, so the inside he's wrestling with this stuff, and he said, outside we had trouble. You know, we we have emotional things going on in our lives, relational issues, things can be happening personally, and daily life never slows down. You know, your car breaks down, or something happens at the job site, or there's always some other issues going on. And Paul says, this is where we were. And we're in the middle of all this stuff, verse 6. Nevertheless, God, and this was always the wonderful thing for Paul, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. Paul is encouraged by Titus because Titus is going to give him now a good report from Corinth. But I think it's interesting he sees God as the one who does that. God brought this about at the right time. The perfect message at the perfect time. And he sees it, notice, as the characteristic work of God. God who comforts the downcast. This is the type of thing God does. Who he is. When he knows we really need it, then he sends it. Not always right when we want it, but when he knows we need it, he sends that comfort, that help. He knows who is downcast. He knows what type of comfort they need. And God brought Titus at that particular time. Certainly, I think Titus's safety was encouraging to Paul. But mostly, it was the, the message, the response from Corinth. So verse 7, not only by his coming, he's happy about Titus being there, but also by the consolation with which he was comforted in you. So the message Titus came and he said, man, the church there was awesome. They were great to me as a messenger of Paul, reflective of what Paul had written to them, which wasn't all easy things. And Paul's heart now is overflowing in relation to that. He says, not only that, when he told us of your earnest desire, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. Paul wasn't just blessed that they personally accepted him. His concern, again, when he says, for me, it wasn't that he was insecure or needy. It was that he cared for these people, and he cared about God's work in their life. 
And he knew their being okay with him and Titus was a reflection of their being okay with the truth that he had written to them and the truth that God was extending to them. And that they weren't going to turn away to false teachings. The people who were saying there wasn't any resurrection or people who were saying it doesn't matter if you're sleeping with your stepmom, you can still be in the church. Or people who were saying, right, there are serious things going on in that church. And the fact that they were willing to say, no, we're zealous for Paul, for the truth he gives us, for, for Titus being here, that they comforted him. These things were super encouraging to Paul, this type of response. Now, verse 8. For even if I made you sorry with my letter, I did not regret it, though I did regret it. For I perceive that the same epistle made you sorry, though only for a while. Now I rejoice, not that you are made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner, that you might suffer loss from us, in nothing. So what Paul says is, I think it's interesting. So he says, I'm not happy that I made you sorry. That was not his goal. His goal wasn't just to beat these people up and have them be sad about their sin. He says, but I am happy that your sorrow worked something from God that brought you back to the right path. That's what I'm happy about. So that's essentially what he's saying in the end. Uh, I think it's interesting, kind of as a, a side note, he says, if I made you sorry with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. That tells us, I think, two things. Number one, when God is inspiring the scripture through individuals, it's more than mere sentiment. Right? Paul wrote truth that wasn't easy for him to write. Sometimes I think it was just, I think it was really easy for Paul to write everything. But no, he wrote things that were really difficult. And he said, like, I, I didn't, re I knew it was right, but I also did kind of regret it, you know? So in the inspiration of the spirit, he did what he knew he had to do, which was right and which was true in the strength of the Lord. And then he says on the other side, he was concerned that I do the right thing. And then he sees the fruit of God and he knows, okay, no, this is good. Why? Not just because they were sorry, but because their sorrow led to repentance. That was the joy that Paul saw, their repentance, not their sorrow. Because a godly sorrow, he says, does not harm that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. The idea is a godly sorrow doesn't ever harm anybody. That, that ends up being a good thing because repentance is a blessing. You know, sometimes we talk about repentance as something that doesn't seem like a blessing. But the reality is, true repentance is always a blessing. And Paul sees something good happening here. And in these next couple of verses, he's going to give us, uh, I think, some of the clearest statements on repentance in the Bible. So these things are important. Notice what he says in verse 10. For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. Repentance is something to be rejoiced in, notice, because it leads to salvation not to be regretted or repented of. It's something I won't ever have to look back and regret. 
True repentance, I will never regret in my life. I will never regret or feel like I shouldn't have done that. And Paul says it leads to salvation. The salvation mentioned here isn't just for for unsaved people, because he's writing to save people. It's salvation from the effects and consequences of sin. Salvation from our sinful selves. Repentance is clearly still for believers. When Jesus writes those letters to the in Revelation to the seven churches, five of them, he calls them to repent. He says, finally, the Laodicea, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Now, now you can notice sorrow is not the same thing as repentance here. And I think that's important to see. Sometimes we can think, and there's all types of ways people try to measure repentance out there. And there's all types of ways people put people through various programs or try to get ministers back into ministry or they're trying to gauge those things. And a lot of times people just try to say, well, I'm sorry about it. Or because they have certain tears or emotion that they have true repentance. Notice Paul says there's actually a difference. There is a sorrow, which is a godly sorrow, which leads to true repentance. And there's an ungodly sorrow. Notice he says that leads to death. The world feels sorrow, but it does not know what to do with it. Godly sorrow leads to the Lord, to truth. But if I'm refusing him, I don't escape all sorrow in the world. And what that sorrow leads me to is not a savior, but just to more sin and to hopelessness. And ultimately, it leads to death. If there's no God and there's no sin and there's no ultimate judgment or accountability, then what does a person do with their conscience? What am I guilty of then? Why do I have fear or shame or sin? What what do I do with any of that? There's no place for repentance, no savior to turn to. You know, there's a guy named Judas who sinned against the Savior. And when he felt like he couldn't turn to him, there's nowhere left to turn. The people who paid him money that he thought would make his life happy, when he said, I've betrayed innocent blood, they said, what's that to us? You deal with it. Oh, you have guilt? You have shame? What you did deserves justice? It's not anything to us. You deal with it. So Satan's like, yeah, you do. You deal with it. And that man went out and he killed himself. Led to death. CDC statistics say in 2022, 49,000 people in the U.S. died by suicide. 49,000. That's just those registered by the CDC. And those are people who commit suicide. They're not even people who, who are already taking substance or drugs or whatever. They just decide, I'm just going to keep doing this. That goes down to some other death. 
or the people who just violently decide I'm going to go shoot a bunch of people and die anyway, who go out like that, that goes down as a, another type of death. Still forms a suicide. You see, I think it was 3,000 or so people died in 9-11. 49,000 people in one year in our culture. That's what our culture produces. This is the world that we live in. And if we go to war for the other thing, but nobody wants to talk about this because there's no material answer. There's only a moral one. And we don't like talking about morals. People don't want to turn to God because we got to admit we got sorrow. We got hopelessness. We have a culture that's creating meaninglessness, so much so that it's leading to death. People don't know what to do with the sorrow they find in life. So they literally check out. They got nowhere to turn. Nowhere to turn. Paul says there's a godly sorrow that leads to repentance. And there's an ungodly sorrow that leads to death. That's why repentance is a blessing. Because the sinner can find a savior. Because the person can find life. Because there's redemption. There's reconciliation. There's something that you find in God and in Christ that you can never find anywhere else in the world. Not just in America, anywhere else in the world. Not just in our culture, but in any other culture. And Paul says, I'm not sorry about that. Because there's a godly sorrow that works in people and it leads people to repentance. But there's a, if you don't have that, then there's just an ungodly, worldly sorrow. And that just leads to death. Repentance leads to life, to salvation. The ungodly sorrow in the world we live in just leads to death. Four, look at verse 11. Observe this very thing that you sorrowed in a godly manner. Now what he's going to do here is describe what that looks like. What diligence it produced in you. What clearing of yourselves. What indignation. What fear. What vehement desire. What zeal. What vindication. In all things you proved yourself clear in this matter. What does godly repentance look like? There's a lot of discussion about that. Paul describes it right here, and I think it's important for us to see because there's a lot of pseudo-repentance out there, and there's a lot of pseudo-repentance that we can excuse ourselves with. Here, Paul describes what the real godly repentance looks like in a person's life, and it has various elements, but all these elements will be something that helps define it, and I think it's important to see as well the opposite of these elements would tell us that it isn't real repentance. So these elements might be there in various levels. But if these are not the thing that declare or that define a real godly repentance, then it's not a godly repentance. And it is going to be an ungodly type of sorrow that doesn't actually lead to life. So... The first thing he says there is there's diligence. These 
Corinthians showed diligence. The Greek word has the idea of haste or feelings that lead to haste. We might say eagerness or earnestness in our day and age. So the Corinthians, when they heard these things, they were diligent about their repentance. They made haste about it. So the opposite of this would be indifference or neglect. A false type of pseudo-repentance will look at sins as little, while a diligent repentance will see them in their true character. Very often, this is the type of person that gets caught and they don't confess. The Corinthians got this letter from Paul and apparently were diligent about confessing and saying they needed to repent and doing something about that repentance. They didn't just immediately say, well, it's not as bad as Paul's talking about. Man, why did he have to put us in this situation? When a person gets caught, they don't actually want to change. They're forced to change, and therefore there's very little diligence in their repentance. They only do as much as they possibly have to. And when we see that type of attitude, there's no haste to do the right thing before God and men, we can tell it is not a godly type of repentance. Because a godly repentance has diligence. Lot and his wife are a great example of an ungodly type of repentance. They didn't want to leave Sodom and Gomorrah. They were connected to it. The angels, as they lingered, had to literally grab them and drag them out of the place. Told them not to look back, and she still looks back. Lot's wife, they're trying to take Lot somewhere else. He begs that he can still stay in the area. They were not diligent. You would think a human being would be diligent if an angel showed up at their house and said, we need to get out of here. But human nature is, in fact, still looking for excuses. Why? Because there's not true repentance there. They weren't actually repentant. They were being forced into God being merciful to them. And they still fought against those warnings. A godly repentance has diligence. If there isn't diligence, you have to question whether it's a godly repentance. The next thing Paul says, what clearing of yourselves, the word actually has, is translated defense, other places has the idea of an apology or an apologist. It's the desire, we could say, to be in the clear. Or particularly in regard to our repentance. Not just to have our slate clean, but to show I'm genuine in this. To make a defense or an apology of that. Zacchaeus is a great example of this type of person, a clearing of himself. He acknowledges that he was a sinner before Jesus Christ. He's a tax collector. He says, I'm going to go back and pay everybody four times what I took from them. He was going to be in the clear. He wanted it to be known that his repentance was genuine. There was both diligence and a defense of that, of his repentance. The opposite of this is the people who defend their reputation. They want to organize and protect how they look in their repentance. They need PR teams and collaboration with press releases. And anybody who will speak the truth about their sin publicly is going to attack and slander. They don't want that. They want to defend or be in the clear with their reputation, not their repentance. 
If that's what comes across, then it's not a godly repentance. Anyone that's still trying to contextualize their sin, if you just understood the situation, you would see this better. They're not repentant. They should be in the clearing about their repentance, not their reputation. The next thing Paul says is there is indignation. The Greek word describes a pain of which the cause is in oneself. Inside, there's hurt about this thing. The tax collector Jesus talks to us about in Luke 18 beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Right? The, the pain in and of himself where the Pharisees said, thank you, God, I'm not like these people. There was no inner hurt in regard to his sin. The opposite work of repentance here, of indignation on the inside, what this word is talking about, is those who want their sin excused versus forgiven. Really, they're not as bad as it seems, and their sin wasn't as bad as it seemed. If only we understood the situation. Sadly, they end up with indignation toward everybody else, as opposed to toward themselves, and particularly toward those who hold them accountable for their sin. They don't see the situation the same way. They don't need to be forgiven. They need to be excused. G.D. Watson, in his book Soul Food, says this, All true sorrow for sin must be imparted to us from God, for he alone knows just how we should feel toward evil. There's something so wretched, so inconceivably awful in sin, that it destroys our very capacity for correct feeling toward it. The Holy Spirit must impart to us from the purest sensibilities of God that holy grief, that fierce principle of sorrow for sin, which is the spring and safeguard of true godliness. If we think our sin is less than it is, then obviously we're still sinfully confused about our sin. Our sin's always worse than it looks. It's not less than it looks. And any person who's working to make it seem that way doesn't have the indignation that Paul's talking about here. The next thing Paul says is the fear, what fear it worked in them. This is fear of God and righteous consequences. And in the scripture, Jonah becomes the perfect example of this. Jonah did not correctly fear God, and the Ninevites immediately fear God. Jonah gets the message to go talk with them and thinks that he can escape from God by traveling to a different geographical area. God, of course, gets him back where he should be. He gives probably one of the least uh, heartfelt messages uh, to the Ninevites, just repent or you're going to die, basically. And they all repent. They fear God. They're like, God could rightly judge us. We should repent. And God gives them repentance. And they're blessed. Jonah is miserable, on the other hand. This is the opposite of this is, of course, having this type of fear of God, dealing with my sin in relation to God, knowing he's there, is hiding sin. It's like Jonah trying to hide from God or fearing man and temporary consequences more than God and his eternal judgments. Joshua, when Achan steals the things from Jericho and then God 
points out that it was Achan, the one who did it, says this to him in Joshua chapter 7, verse 19. My son, I beg you, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and make confession to him and tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. Give glory to the Lord God of Israel. Acknowledge that God was there when you did this and when you took this. Acknowledge it. Live in the fear of God. Glorify him by acknowledging that he's with you, that he knows this, and that he's aware of it. It's not hidden. The refusal to repent is a more determined form of sinning than the man who simply sins and confesses. Proverbs 28, 13 says, He who covers his sins will not prosper, but he whoever, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. He who covers his sins will not prosper. The, the fear of God is a characteristic act of true godly repentance. I will live in the acknowledgement that God sees my sin and knows it and knows who I am. And if I try to act like that's not true or hide that, I'm not truly repentant. Even if I'm crying or I have sorrow, it's sorrow for myself or my reputation. It's an ungodly type of sorrow. Desire is the next word he uses that has the idea of longing. And the context is longing for the right thing. It's a repentance that longs for right relationship with God. There should be a desire to be right with God. We long for God, for his love, for his presence. Again, Peter is a wonderful example of this. We're going to see in John 21 soon on Sunday mornings. Peter has made a horrible mistake. He's denied Christ. He's fled from him. But they've had a conversation about his sin. And when Jesus is on the shore and John says it's Jesus... Peter jumps off the boat and swims to shore. Peter has a desire to be near Jesus. Is he perfect? No. Jesus asked him three times if he loves him, and it hurts him. But Peter says, you know all things. You know that I love you. There was a true repentance in Peter, and there was a desire to be near Jesus for him, for relationship with him. So the opposite of this is self-preservation, isolation. You desire your own protection, your own comfort, your own lifestyle. Instead of repentance, you stay away from the church or Jesus Christ because they're hypocrites or because you're not ready or a thousand other reasons. They're all focused on people and not God. The truth is, it's because there's no real repentance there. Because there should be a desire for God in your life. And that will define how you look at your sin and change your idea and your heart of it. The next thing he says is zeal. The Greek word has the idea of an active and fervent mind. The idea there is repentance is your main concern. It is what you're thinking about. It is what you're focused on. You have a zeal for it. David and Bathsheba is a great, again, example of this. David sins with Bathsheba. He tries to hide it. He cannot stop thinking about it. He writes about it in his Psalms. It's like his bones are rotting inside of him. It's like he's turning dry. It's some of the worst times in his entire life. Until Nathan puts his finger in his face and says, You're the man. 
And then instead of trying to protect himself, he says, you're right. You're right. He's zealous about his repentance. Instead of being concerned with everything else, he was concerned with his repentance. The opposite, again, is a person who's concerned of just surviving it. They want the situation to be over. They don't want to see their sin. They want relief from their sin. They want it over versus dealt with. David accepted the consequences that came to him because he knew they were right and he wanted to be repentant. Are you zealous to make sure your repentance is genuine and sincere? Or are you zealous to just get away from it all? Self-love hates to see itself as sinful. How do we look at things? A.W. Tozier, in his book, The Size of the Soul, says, Do a thorough job of repenting. Do not hurry to get it over with. Hasty repentance means shallow spiritual experience and a lack of certainty in the whole life. Let godly sorrow do her healing work. Until we allow the consciousness of sin to wound us, we will never develop a fear of evil. It is our wretched habit of tolerating sin that keeps us in a half-dead condition. Zeal. And the last thing he says, Paul says there, is vindication. Vindication is the desire to see justice done. The idea here is, I agree with God against myself. That's what's happening. I'm seeing things from a new perspective with new eyes. Thomas Cranmer, who was a Christian back in the day a little bit, he actually wrote the Book of Common Prayer, which the Anglican Church still uses in its different liturgies, was, uh, came out against the Catholic Church for Protestant doctrine, and then he was imprisoned by the Catholic Queen Mary and basically threatened with death. And he was, uh, uh, for all intents and purposes, a noble, godly man, and he cracked under the pressure. He didn't want to be put to death. He got scared, and he wrote a recantation of all his Protestant doctrine, the guy who wrote, literally made, basically, the, the book that they work off of. And then, realizing what he had done and coming under conviction, he repented of that. Should have never recanted the truth. It is the truth. I should have never backed down in that weak moment. And then he was sentenced to be burned to the stake, burned at the stake. And when they brought him out to burn him at the stake, <clears throat> he said this about his right hand, which he said had written contrary to his heart and to the truth. He said, for as much as my hand shall be first punished, for if I may come to the fire, it shall first be burned. And when they tied him to the stake and they thrust in the fire to the flames started. He said, this is the hand that hath offended, and he shoved that right hand that wrote that recantation into the fire first. That's a vindication. That's a person saying, I agree with God against myself and my sin, with what he says about it. That's the attitude and the heart. The opposite of this is feeling that we've been done an injustice by God calling us to repent. And there's a whole lot of this in the world and in our culture. 
that it is an injustice for God to call us to repent of the sins of our flesh or the sins of our spirit. God himself spoke to Cain about his sin. What was Cain's response? Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Cain wasn't, Cain wasn't repentant, not with a godly sorrow. He had sorrow, but it was an ungodly sorrow, sorrow for himself, sorrow for his consequences, sorrow that his punishment was more than he could bear for murdering someone. Ole Housby in his book, The Christian Life, says this, Nay, the decision involved in repentance is this, Will the sinner be still and listen to all that Jesus has to say about his inner as well as his outward sins? Or will he seek to evade the truth? If he wills to evade the truth, he cannot be helped no matter how much he seeks God. Paul said, I am blessed that this is what your repentance was. This is what your repentance looked like, a godly sorrow that led to salvation. Your repentance, it produced all of these things. In a godly manner, it showed these things. The diligence, the clearing, the indignation, the fear, the vehement desire, the zeal, the vindication. He says, in all these things, you proved yourselves clear in this matter. And again, in individual lives, the various levels and feelings and movements of these things are going to depend on the individual and the situation and the work of the Holy Spirit. But whatever is, we'll say, more prominent, whether you don't feel as much diligence, but what of clearing, what of indignation, what of fear, Maybe you don't feel like you have that desire. Well, what of zeal or vindication? What is God working? These are the things that are going to characterize a true biblical repentance in a believer. If these are not the things that characterize it, it is not true repentance. And whatever sorrow that person shows is not a godly sorrow. It's an ungodly sorrow because godly sorrow leads to this. And it's the best description you're going to find anywhere. And it's the truth because it's inspired by God Almighty. And I think it's important for us to recognize it's not our job to hurry people through the work of the Spirit and godly sorrow that leads to repentance. Sometimes we want to rush people from repentance to grace because we forget a repentant heart is a work of God's grace. It is the grace of God that would work true repentance in any human heart regarding sin. And we can't rush people through that because we feel bad because they're sorrowful. That's what Paul's saying. I get it. I felt bad. I regretted it, but I don't regret it. And I didn't regret it because I know this is what happens. And this is what God is working. And the only thing worse than this is not having a place of repentance. Hebrews 12, 17 says of Esau, you know that afterwards when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. That's the scariest place to be. Not repentant, 
not worrying about whatever consequence or situations might come in your life because of repentance. The scariest place to be is in a place where you find no place for repentance. The chance for your repentance is over because repentance will always work something godly in us. It is a blessing that we can turn to God in repentance. That we would look at our sin in a way that would bring us to repentance. It is a work of the Holy Spirit and the grace of God in our lives. And repentance will be seen and known. Somebody said repentance for sin is worth nothing without repentance from sin. The idea being you'll be able to tell. You'll be able to tell. John the Baptist said, therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance. These are the fruits worthy of repentance. This is what a godly repentance looks like. This is why God says in Isaiah 55, 7, let the wicked forsake his way. Let the unrighteous man forsake his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord. He will have mercy on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon Repentance is a blessing, that God would call us to repentance is a blessing, that he would work repentance in our heart for sin is a blessing, that godly sorrow would have its proper place and lead to this type of godly repentance is a blessing. Don't take it for granted. Respond quickly if the Lord puts these things on your heart. If you're like, what does that look like for me? Read the verse again. Be diligent. Be zealous. Pray that God gives you the right view of your sin. Make confession. Don't hide things. Press forward in him. Paul says this, therefore, verse 12, although I wrote to you, I did not do it for the sake of him that had done the wrong, nor for the sake of him who suffered wrong, but that our care for you in the sight of God might appear to you. Paul says, look, my concerns in writing to you were not just for the person who did the wrong, particularly probably speaking in the situation where he called them to put the man out of the church, which he had already addressed earlier. I'm, I'm not even just writing because there was a victim there or because there was a perpetrator there. I'm writing because I want you to see I'm trying to express my care for you in the sight of God. I'm trying to address how God sees these things. I'm not even just on the victim side or on the perpetrator's side. I'm on God's side. And I want God's truth to be brought out in the whole situation. Now, people don't always like that. Usually when people come and sit down, they want a situation dealt with. People want to know you're on their side. And there's a lot of scenarios when people find out that like, oh, wait, you're not on my side that they don't want you involved in the situation anymore. But we're not actually called to be on anybody's side. We're called to be on God's side. Usually God has something to say to everybody. <laughs> so Paul is saying, look, I didn't just write to you because of this situation for the person who had done the wrong or for the person who had suffered the wrong. I wrote to you so that our care for you in the sight of God might appear to you. This is, this is how people need to see it. I want you to see it how God sees it. 13. Therefore, we've been comforted in your comfort, and we've rejoiced exceedingly more for the joy of Titus because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. Paul wants to know, 
he's blessed by that. He's not necessarily saying these things to convict them. He's saying, this is what happened, and I'm rejoicing in it. This is how you responded. And to see godly repentance in people's lives is a blessing. It is a wonderful thing to see somebody's life change because of a godly repentance. And Paul is overjoyed because of what Titus has said and what he sees in them. He says, For if in anything I have boasted to him about you, I'm not ashamed. But as we spoke all things to you in truth, even so our boasting to Titus was found true. Paul, in a remarkable way, sent Titus there, but he must have said to him beforehand, they're going to respond right. I know this is tough, and I know we're giving them a hard thing here, but I'm going to boast that they're God's people. God told me they're his people. He told me he had people in Corinth, and these guys, they're going to respond right. I'm, I'm concerned. I never know, but he boasted in them to Titus, and he said, we spoke the truth to you, and it was also true what we boasted in, that you guys were going to respond the right way. And praise the Lord, they did. And he says, his affections are greater for you as he remembers the obedience of you all and how with fear and trembling you received him. Titus loves him now because he's like, this church was awesome. These people accepted this so in such an amazing way with such godly Wonderful repentance and love. They accepted him and the truth. 16, Paul says, Therefore I rejoice that I have confidence in you in everything. Which again is a wonderful example. Like most of us, if we had a friend that was described like 1 Corinthians, would not have much confidence in him or them. But Paul does. And he's blessed to know them. In their repentance, Paul did not have a Jonah-like attitude. He would call to repentance, but he believed the best and that God was going to respond in their hearts and that they would respond accordingly. And he had the type of heart that wanted to see that work of God in people's hearts and in people's lives. And we should have the same type of heart and confidence in people's repentance and their recovery, that God can do that work in them. And that he died to do that work in them, whether it's us personally or other individuals that we know. So let's stand. We're going to pray. If you're here tonight and you need to repent, be zealous and repent. That's what God says. Those he loves. He chastens and calls to repentance. Just because God loves you and he knows anything you'll find outside of him is not going to lead to life. It's going to lead to death. So I encourage you, respond. Repent. The Holy Spirit will tell you what to do. He'll lead you. And it should be in line with the things that we looked at in his word. But let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your goodness toward us. We thank you that you love us enough to step into our lives, call us back to yourself. Thank you that there's always a voice in the way when we turn our backs saying, this is the way, walk ye in it. Thank you that you call wicked individuals to turn from their wicked thoughts and ways because you're going to abundantly pardon and show mercy. So Lord, we've all had our portion of that. And I pray we can know it in greater ways. 
So thank you for your grace in our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.